Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscribers, Graham and George, for their support as well as all of my other Patreon subscribers. If you would like to support the podcast financially and gain access to exclusive companion mini-episodes, articles, group Zoom meetings or two brand new series of interviews, head over to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium where you will find six different levels of subscription starting at just £5 a month. Alternatively, go to justgiving.com, search for a mic on the podium and make a one-off donation there. Details are in the show notes below. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who can be described as a pioneer in the world of conducting. She's held title positions in the United States, United Kingdom, Brazil and Austria, and in 2002, she created the Tacky Concordia Conducting Fellowship, which is still going strong today. It's a very great pleasure to welcome Marin Alsop. Marin, it's lovely to talk to you and see you today. How are you? Um, well, thank you. It's great to be here with you. Wonderful to have you here. Um, you're in Vienna at the moment, and um, I'm assuming about to work with the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra. Um, we were chatting before I pressed record about how we've all coped with lockdown and with various things, you know, requests to do podcasts or requests to do various things. How's it been for you? What was it like at the beginning, the shock of it all happening? And how's it been for you over the last sort of nine months? I'm sure I um, I share the same emotions as most most everybody. You know, I, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. You know, from oh wow, I have time off to oh why do I have so much time off? You know, that kind of thing. So I would say that I've tried to um, I've tried to pace myself a little bit more and try to take more time out from things. Um, be more thoughtful about, you know, travel, of course, mm. which is something that's always bothered me in terms of, you know, our car huge carbon footprints. Mm. Um, I've spent a lot more time with my family, which has been absolutely wonderful. And, you know, we did a few things that we never would have done. We, early on in the, in the lockdown, I, um, I called an RV, um, uh, you know, mobile home, company and booked an art we booked an rv and we drove across the united states you know self-contained mm. unit and that was something that you know wasn't gonna ever happen as my son said yes it was quite unexpected <laughs> um so off we went and uh you know the the fact that we we were able to be here in vienna for extended periods of time that that wasn't something that was going to happen either this year so you know trying to look on the bright side and you know zoom only to the you know nth power not to the hundredth power zoom can i think it it can just eat you alive mm, absolutely i mean i'm thankful for it because otherwise this podcast wouldn't exist but um <laughs> uh, yeah i mean even teaching on zoom i taught somebody yesterday and it's it's just so hard it's so difficult and you know it is difficult but have you found michael that um i've found some some advantages to it as well. I found some upside that I've been able to spend much more one-on-one -on -one time with my students, with my yeah. conducting students. And the few times that we've been able to be together live, you know, with, with a piano, only with piano, have been extraordinarily um, intense and meaningful for them. So mm -hmm. as, you know, whereas last, before the pandemic, 
you know, they would come in semi-prepared for a full orchestra. Now, you know, they really understand what kind of opportunity they have every time they step on the podium. So I, I've, I've really come away with, and, and I think it, we've been able to work on a lot of detail work and contextual work that we often don't have time for. That's very true. That is very true. In fact, you know, looking back at yesterday's lesson, we spent two hours going through Porcinella and Mother Goose. And, uh, and normally, you know, if you were in a class with people, you wouldn't have two hours one-to-one -one with somebody like that just on, you know, the, the ins and outs of it, on colours, on, you know, all the sorts of things that you need to do. So, yeah, absolutely, you're right. Um, I'm going to go right back to the beginning because I do with everybody. And I know you're a violinist like me, um, or you were like me. Um, when did music first come into your life? When did the violin start? Was it the first instrument? And how were those early years musically for you? Well, I, I really didn't have much choice in this <laughs> whatsoever because my parents were both professional musicians. My father was concertmaster of the New York City Ballet and my mother was a cellist there. And he was concertmaster for 30 years and she was in the orchestra for 50 plus years. Wow. Um, so, you know, I, I have an image of the two of them, you know, in their early twenties, just, just having gotten married and saying, you know, sitting in their basement apartment, one bedroom apartment in New York saying, oh, you know, if only we had a pianist. <laughs> and that's why I was born. So I was, I, I was produced for a specific purpose to play the piano and fill out the trio. Mm. So that was my <laughs> role and piano was my first instrument and I absolutely hated the piano. <laughs> so it was the wrong instrument for me, you know, physically, timbrely, it just wasn't right. Mm. And uh, I retired from piano when I was six and uh, my parents sort of tricked me into going to summer camp. <clears throat> I mean, not, they didn't trick me into going to summer camp. I was dying to get out of Manhattan, you know, and mm. even at six, you have a seven, you have an archetypal image of summer camp, you know, with sailing and horseback riding and all these kinds of things. But they ended up sending me, oh, they said right before I left, they said, oh, you know, you might have to play the violin at the summer camp. And of course, by then I didn't care because I was so, I could, thought I could squeeze it in between my, you know, sailing and horseback riding. Mm. And, uh, as it turns out, the summer camp they sent me to is, is called Meadow Mount. And it's really like the violin, the, the concentration camp for violinists. <laughs> I mean, it is a work camp. It is yeah. a place where you practice, you're expected to practice from 8 a.m. until 1 p.m. every day, five hours. And of course, I didn't, I didn't, I never practiced that much when I, I, I was too little. But I have to say the most amazing thing happened, which is that the violin was the right instrument for me. You know, the physicality of it, the, the sound of it under my ear. I, I just love the instrument. And so, you know, in eight weeks of, even if I only practiced 20 minutes on the hour, which, which probably was, was, is an exaggeration, maybe if I practiced 10 minutes on the hour, that was still 50 minutes a day mm. for a kid. And uh, so I got pretty good at it. And I, um, I auditioned for Juilliard pre-college when I, got back from the camp and, uh, you know, sort of that started me into the world of music, which I, I was very reluctant to go into after my experience playing the piano. Uh, isn't it funny how 
you know, the, the world finds a way or another sentence like that in where, you know, your parents wanted to form the Allsop family um, tr piano trio. Trio, uh, right, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, and when my eldest daughter was born, she had violin lessons at the beginning and for various reasons, it didn't work out for her. She's ended up being a wonderful percussionist and a, a marvellous singer and she found her, her metier or found her, uh, her place, you know. Did you like violin right away? Uh... No, I don't think I did. Um, it was offered to me as a, we, I took a test. Uh, it was a t um, an LP and when you're nine years old, you sit in your class and and some a teacher says, we're doing a test today and you just blindly do as you're told. And the, the questions were like, you know, here are three notes, bar, 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 which one of those is the highest? So it was a nine year old, I just filled it out. And a week later, this very large man came into the room and the teacher said, can the following kids go out with him? And he said, You've got a good ear. I want you to learn the violin. And I was a nine-year-old. I went, yeah, okay. I think it was <laughs> only because uh, I seemed to be quite good at it, and 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 I got was going through exams really quickly. That then I started to really enjoy it. Um, but I don't think I it ever dawned on me to be a violinist until I was fourteen, and I saw a program about, about the London Symphony Orchestra. And thought, hey, this is good. They're getting paid a salary and some spending money when they go travel the world. This sounds marvellous. Um, but yeah, I didn't like it immediately. Um, but it's amazing. It's amazing to think that if your school hadn't had that opportunity for you, mm. it wouldn't have happened for you. And you know, I think of all the kids in 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 school these days that just they don't have the same opportunity that we no. did. Right. To even try an instrument, you know, to see if there's a passion there and and to be encouraged in this way. It, it's so important that we get back to to supporting art in the schools. Absolutely. I mean, that, that was 41 years ago. And my lessons and from then for the next three years were free. I had a lesson every week and I had free violin lessons and the local council paid for it. I, I don't I'm not saying that it should be free now, but at least give give the kids a chance to find out if they do have a good ear and whether they would like to be I mean I'm lucky I live in Birmingham and we still have a functioning music service with functioning tiers of ensembles that build up to the top with the school symphony orchestra which I conducted for 11 years um, and so you know kids can have the chance but it's mainly for the people with money it's not for the kid you know my parents wouldn't have if I'd have turned around and said, I want to learn the violin, they'd have said, I haven't got the money for that. Um, it was only by the time I was 12, we had to find the money because by then I was into it, you know. Um, right, right, for sure. Well, you know, this is sort of reminds me of the reason I started the Orchids program in Baltimore for kids that really just don't have the exposure or the opportunity or especially the financial wherewithal. Mm. Because it's it's not inexpensive. You have to buy the instrument. You have to pay for the lessons. All these things, but what you realize after you watch these kids is that every child is born a genius. You know, it's just a matter of how how high we set our expectations or how low we set our expectations, mm. and what kind of exposure and opportunity we give them. Yeah, and it's finding the the bit of the world in which they're a genius in. You know, that's the point, isn't it? That's, that's uh, true too, of course. <laughs> Not everybody's a genius in every area, but yeah. I, I just feel that capacity is um, is really underrated often in young mm. people. You know, oh, they wouldn't be interested in that, or oh, they wouldn't. Uh, you know, I think I think music is universal. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm of the great belief that there are just, you know, Duke Ellington said there are two kinds of music, good music and bad music. I, I'm of that belief, you know, whether it's pop music or classical music, I think there's 
greatness in both. Well, you talked about youth music and having done my homework, as I always do, dear listeners, I know <laughs> that it was a concert that you went to when you were nine years old of the New York Philharmonic. And I'm assuming it would have been one of those very famous uh, concerts for families and youth conducted by Leonard Bernstein, where you were first inspired by orchestras and by conducting. And I think I've read you said you, you've been wanting to conduct ever since that time. Can you remember that concert? Can you remember what? Yeah, what, no, I can't remember the music at no. all. Right. But I remember when um, the conductor came out and the first thing that struck me, you know, I'd already been to probably dozens, if not a hundred concerts by, by that age mm. with my parents. The thing that struck me was that he wasn't wearing the usual penguin outfit. <laughs> he was wearing, you know, he looked really hippie. I think he was wearing a turtleneck or a Nehru jacket, you know? Yeah. And so he looked really groovy. And then instead of just starting to conduct, he turned around and started talking to me or talking to the audience. I thought he was talking to me yeah. about the music. And I remember he was excited and engaged and really wanted to share his thoughts about the music. Then when he started conducting, he was having a ball. He was just really enjoying himself to the max. And, oh, okay, if you're the conductor, you're allowed to have a really good time. I want to be the conductor. <laughs> mm. Well, that's brilliant, isn't it? Um, I mean, he's going to come back later on, um, Leonard Bernstein, uh, and figure quite quite large. Um, skipping ahead, you went to Yale originally and then jumped to Juilliard. And I wanted to touch on something else that I read, that you, you then, um, having done that, went and played and did some, I'm assuming, extra work or deputy work, depending on how what you call it, wherever you are, with the New York Philharmonic and also with the New York City Ballet. I'm assuming mum and dad were playing. Uh, were they still playing when you they were there? Were, they were playing there, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, were you, I'm intrigued to know this now, but talking to you, you know, obviously as a world-famous conductor, but at that point, were you just doing the job as a fiddle player or were you looking at who was stood on the podium already at this point, thinking, you know, why are they doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I was already, you know, even from the time I was nine and I told my violin teacher, oh, I'm going I'm to be a conductor. And she said, oh, well, you're too young for that. And, and she's the first one that said this horrible phrase. And, you know, girls can't do that. Mm, mm. And so, you know, that sort of shut me down for a while. But my parents were, of course, outraged and oh, you can do anything you want. But mm. um I would ask my dad if he would buy me the miniature scores, the study scores for the pieces I was working on at school at Juilliard. And so I would sort of watch the scores as I was playing and watch what the conductors were doing. So I was trying, I think in my own way to self-educate mm. and try, try getting a feeling about what it might be like to conduct. So, I was already, already well on that path. And of course, by the time I was a teenager, every single person that came into my orbit knew immediately that I wanted to be a conductor. I could not stay quiet about this. Every, you know, oh, I want to be a conductor. I really want to be a conductor. So, you know, when the occasional um, gig came up and the conductor didn't show up or this and that, you know, my friends would all say, oh, she wants to be a conductor. <laughs> <laughs> so I would have a couple little opportunities here and there and I would get friends together to play and you know I tried everything to try to try to educate myself and teach myself I, I started studying 
around that time when I was about 20, I started studying privately with this wonderful uh, Viennese guy named Carl Bamberger. Mm. And, you know, so it was just me and him and his, you know, potted plants and vacuum cleaner, which we set up like the orchestra. <laughs> but I was at least, I was already thinking about it um, mm. almost, almost every waking moment. Mm. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, you know, towards the end, back end of my playing career, I vividly remember one recording session where I was sitting next to my desk partner, uh, Kath Arledge, who's, who's a very successful presenter. She runs a National Children's Orchestra now in, in the UK. Um, and I remember I, I had two scores open on the floor and she had a sort of um, plans for a family concert she was writing on the floor. You know, another was were playing because we were waiting for the conductor to come back in from listening. And she turned to me and said, how many horns are in, you know, whatever piece it was? And I gave her the answer. And we both stopped and looked at each other and giggled as if to say, neither of us are really doing, playing the violin anymore for a job. We're all, our minds are expanding in different directions, you know. And that's why I asked the question in the fact that there came a point in my playing where I realised I was watching the conductor probably more than anybody else thinking why are you doing that or why did you say that because you've just lost the brass section or why you know that's a wonderful phrase I'm going to try and remember that um yeah. you remember who, who who you played for were there any big names when you when you did those games well, you know when oh, oh yeah I had the incredible opportunity I um I I started doing a lot of gigging around New York when I was uh, finishing up at Juilliard and I played um in the mostly Mozart festival one summer and you know, every week was a different guest conductor. And I I would ask every single one of them for either a lesson or mm. advice. And I have to say, nobody, nobody turned me down. Good. And, yeah. you know, I think of, um, I think of somebody, there was a wonderful um, conductor, I think from Mexico originally named Eduardo Mata. He was the conductor of the Dallas Symphony for many years. He mm. was great. He gave me a couple of lessons, Carl Richter came through and gave me a few lessons and and people were so nice and so incredibly generous and they they wouldn't wouldn't even accept payment you know yeah. they, they were just and I, perhaps that was just such a such an enthusiastic learner um that it 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 made up for it but i think what you're talking about about sitting and observing and watching not just the conducting you know, that, oh, that technique is beautiful or that kind of articulation really works, but also the interplay between mm. one individual and say 50 or a hundred mm. and that dynamic, because that's, that's a big part of our job, isn't it? You know, yeah, trying yeah. to, trying to manage the psychology mm. of the social setting. Absolutely. It really is. And looking ahead, you know, there are three names that stick out as being teachers. And I, I often ask this question because as conductors, we find it fascinating, but also music lovers find it fascinating. Three big names as teachers, Carl Bamberger, as you said, uh, then you studied with Harold Farberman, another big name from conducting pedagogy, if that's a word, I think it's a word. Um, and then, of course, Leonard Bernstein later on when you go to Tanglewood, along with Gustav Meyer and, and uh, Seiji Ozawa. Yeah, but Gustav has to be in there too. Right. He was equally, yeah. Okay, so, well, four. Um, did you get 
Um, I mean, I've asked this before with people who studied with, say, Hans Swarovski and then somebody else. Hans Swarovski was famously never into stick technique and very much into the learning of the scores and the and would give you about 10 minutes over a three-year period about stick technique. And then others are obsessed by what we do with our hands and arms and our posture and our, how we stand. And what would you say that you got from those four names, including Gustav Meyer, um, you know, if you looked at yourself on a video now, would you think actually that most of that's come from Gustav or most of that's come from Lenny or do you know what I mean? Um, how oh, do you think sure. the makeup I mean, is? Definitely. You know, I think my trajectory was very fortunate because um, Carl Bamberger was, he, he was born of the tradition, mm. you know, from the great Viennese tradition. And so he brought that to the table for me. He, um, you know, he spoke about, about his experience, um, you know, in Vienna, being there as a young kid, you know, all, so there was, it was a cultural um, immersion in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, and he helped me, he helped me technically, but of course this was very early in my career. So I, I can't really say that I was as fast a learner as I wish I had you know, I wish I had been, but it was a very general overview, which was extremely helpful because then when I went to Harold Farberman, he was all about technique. Mm. That was it. You know, it was really a huge focus on that. And then with Gustav, he spoke about technique, but it was always, um, it was always about the music uh, propelling the technique, mm. but I could use a lot of what I learned from both Bamberger and Farberman in my classes with uh, Gustav. And then of course, um, the, the joy of my life was becoming a student of Leonard Bernstein after having you know, had him as my idol mm. my whole life. And that of course, as everyone can imagine was a, a truly um, consummate experience. I mean, it was, he was, I mean, you know, people thought I think that technically he was, um, he was not very concerned with technique, but he was a great technician. Mm. When he needed to be clear, he could be extremely clear. Mm. When he didn't need to be clear, he definitely was not clear. Um, <laughs> and I think he was well aware of those uh, choices. But for Bernstein, everything emanated from our role as messenger for the composer. And him being such a great composer himself, I think that he, he took that responsibility uh, very seriously. But I have to say that um, not only did I learn about the narrative behind the music and the role of the conductor and uh, the commitment we need to have, I watched him live his life, you know, in the public eye mm. and really own a lot of causes that he believed in. Mm. I watched him use his position to further the things that he believed in. And this was also a great life lesson. And I think it was extremely formative for me in, in trying to envision what kind of citizen of the world I wanted to become, mm. you know? Yeah. So yeah. He, was, he was much more than a conducting teacher, you know? He, he yes. was like, he was my Yoda. 
<laughs> it, well, it's a wonderful term. It's actually a term I've used about another conducting teacher, Yorma uh, uh, Panela, but mainly because he speaks in the in the you know his word order is very very uh, very much like Yoda's, and you know he, he, this sort of mystical being that he, he one sentence and you know, all of a sudden things are changed. You won the Kusevitsky Prize at Tanglewood in 1989. Was that where you met him, and then from there, or did, had you met him before? I had met him earlier. Um, I actually played a couple times under him conducting. Yeah. So, uh, but I was terrified to to really try to speak to him. I mean, that was the immense. You know, he was my idol, and and I had so much adulation for him that I was terrified that if I went to try to talk to him, I would suddenly be rendered mute. You know, and an idiot. So, I uh, I played under him a few times and. My dad was in the um, sessions for West Side Story, those famous um, oh, yes, recording yes, sessions. Yeah. So if you watch the videos, my dad is sitting in the second stand of violins. And the thing you don't see is that I'm in the back of the room watching. <laughs> um, so, you know, I tried to go to rehearsals always when he was conducting New York Phil and just observe and watch. But I really met him the first time at the Schleswig-Holstein Festival in 1987. And uh, that's the first time I ever conducted for him. And there's a very, very sweet um, little tiny video clip uh, from that summer in 1987, Schleswig-Holstein with Bernstein teaching me. Mm, wonderful, I shall look it up. I have a feeling I may have seen it. You made me smile when you talked about holding somebody in such high regard and being scared to speak to them. Now I started conducting um, about, uh, well, I, I, about halfway through my violin playing career, and uh, I'd got a concert coming up, and I wanted to ask Simon Rattle's advice because he was the boss in Birmingham where I was playing. It took me about a week and a half, and then I went and spoke to him. And I know now, having spoken to him since, and I, you know, I get on with Simon very, very well. It would have been fine, but I was so scared. And Karina Kanalakis was exactly the same. She, he even said to her, "Look, you've got to stop being scared. If this is going to work, you're going to have to start to speak to me like a normal human being." You know, it, it, we do build it up in our own heads, don't we? Because we have such fondness for them, or uh, we're so amazed by what they do that we they think. You know, they're just going to think, "Oh, what's this silly person want now?" No, it's 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 absolutely true, and uh, there's nothing. I think there's nothing more revelatory than having an idol like that become real, mm. and you know, having them exceed your expectations—not just meet them, but exceed them because they're real, they're authentic. Um, they're genuine. Simon Rattle's wonderful person. Mm. You know, besides being great conductors, they're they're just super decent human beings. That's right, exactly. I'm going to slightly jump back now because we're, we've got to the late '80s, and you're just about to go out and become a you know a, become a conductor in inverted commas and be guest conduct and your first job. But I wanted because of the one of the names of the orchestras in 1981, you set up an orchestra called String Fever, which I'm intrigued to know about because of the title of the orchestra. But also in 1984, you set up Concordia, which was a 50-piece uh, orchestra specialising in 20th century music. I think American music mainly as well. First of all, tell me about String Fever, because the name intrigues me. And then Concordia, which the reason why I bring that name up, of course, is now the fellowship that you, you run, which we'll come to later on. So tell me about those two. Uh, and was it 
this may seem a rather sort of pointed question. Did you set these up because of that comment all of those years ago that, you know, a girl can't do that? You thought, well, if I set up my own orchestras, then I am allowed to do that. You know, it's my own thing. Um, well, I think my motivation um, with String Fever wasn't absolutely clear. Um, this emanated, you know, I always had some issues with the, um, the rigidity of the mm. classical music scene. I, I didn't like that you weren't supposed to move and you weren't supposed to smile and you're not supposed to clap and you're not supposed to cough and you're not supposed, you know, there were so many rules that yeah. made me crazy. And I thought, you know, maybe I should go into rock and roll. This, this was my plan B. <laughs> right. you know, rock and roll violin, especially in you know 1980, wasn't really a big thing. No. So. I, um, I was trying to find somebody to write some charts. I didn't even have a group, but um, I, I met this guy, Gary Anderson. He said, I don't, I'm not big on rock, but I played in Woody Herman's band and I could write you swing charts. Mm. So I said, oh, sure. I didn't, we didn't even know how to swing the music. I mean, this is so funny. And uh, so I called a whole bunch of friends. And after I called about five or six friends of mine, I realized I had called all women. So we made it all women. I said, ah, let's let's go for kind of a gimmick. Yeah. And so we had a all woman, 14 piece string swing band, six violins, three violas, three cellos, bass and drums. It was crazy. And I've never heard anyone laugh as hard as Gary laughed when we read through his piece because he suddenly realized that we didn't even know you had to swing the eighth notes. I mean, it was so bad. But of course, and all my friends were like, oh God, what harebrained idea does she have now? And they said, oh, come on, we can't do this. And of course the word can't is my enormous yeah. motivator. So we stuck with it and um, we got really good. We played together for, you're not gonna lose 20 years. Brilliant. And, um, and we, have a, we have a few discs and we played with a bunch of pop artists, um, especially Billy Joel, we're on a few of his albums and uh, Paul Simon and uh, yeah. some, some really terrific um, pop artists, and uh, it was a it was a fantastic um, education, also um, musical education. You know, in because time is very different in jazz than it is in classical music. So mm. it really expanded my sense of rhythm. Um, it enabled me to be comfortable speaking um, to an audience, even if they're um, at a bar and drinking a little too much, you know what I mean? Yeah. So adaptability. And I just played in this band, you know, and, and led from the first uh, fiddle chair. And then um, I, I really was trying to uh, figure out how to pursue the conducting. And I, I auditioned for Juilliard a few times and I kept getting very close, but never getting in. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I should just start my own orchestra and figure out. And so I asked all my friends in String Fever and a bunch of other um, friends if they would play for me. And it was really my friends who helped me and enabled me right. to become a conductor. And that's what, where Concordia started. It was really an offshoot or, or an outgrowth um, and the next step from String Fever because I, I had then also fallen in love with crossover and jazz and it was, you know, this was really about 10 years before it hit hit big. Um, and so I had a real interest in the repertoire and, you know, with Concordia, we, 
we ran down, this is before the internet too, um, the music of James P. Johnson, who wrote the Charleston. And um, I restored all this music, which is now available for orchestras, you know, things like that, that, that really felt meaningful to me in the moment. And of course, at the same time, I was learning how to conduct and mm. my friends were, were really helping me, not just with uh, that's clear, that's not clear, but also, you know, how to speak to an orchestra and, and yeah. what, how to get the best out of people. Mm. I mean, that's the resource, isn't it? I mean, you had your friends doing that there and also, you know, later on with other groups, I'm sure, and teachers. I had the same with the CBSO where, you know, I, I, I was allowed to start to conduct them and was given more and more work. And then, you know, I'd say something in a rehearsal and, and somebody would take me aside in the break and say, you know, you're not, you're not supposed to say that. You're only saying right. that because you're one of us and you know that. But if you go and conduct some reels, you can't say that because you're not one of them and you don't know that. So, you know, try and uh, and little uh, little epithets of or pearls of wisdom from players like that was, you know, mm. I remember the second bassoonist who was in the orchestra 42 or 43 years coming to me and saying, I know you spotted that note's flat. Can I tell you why? And then he would give me the technical reason why that note's flat. Little things yeah. like that where you, you just, yeah. later on you look back and think, oh my God, what, a, what an amazing resource. Um, it's true. I'm, it's exactly what I'm talking about. All these yeah. little, sort of the little things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. And, you know, if you just stepped into your career and made all those mistakes, they could be fatal. Yes. You know, it could all add up. But, yeah. you know, we're both very thankful for those, uh, those musicians early in our career who were willing to take the time and step out and say, hey, um, you know, just care about you and here's a little piece of advice or something. You know? mm. So uh, let's jump back to where I was. So we're now in uh, the late 80s, 89, 88, 89, uh, you're associate conductor with the Richmond Symphony and then you get your first music director job at Eugene Symphony. Um, later to become laureate, and then going a, going ahead, we look at a principal conductor and then music director of Colorado, so a proposition at St. Louis Symphony, and then Baltimore. The job of a music director in the U.S. is such a a different game or different kettle of fish than it is in, for instance, the U.K. or where you are now in well, Vienna. So we sh we forgot to mention Bournemouth. Which was oh, I'm, I'm coming back to Bournemouth. Are you coming back to Bournemouth? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that gets yeah. a special oh, place. Yeah. No, no, I was, I, I was going to actually. It was a question to do with um, nationalities of orchestras and how. Yeah, with they work, with the but, American scene, yeah. huh? But yeah. but we're, we're in the American scene. Of course, you're you have the role as music director in it, and you're music director, you know, of the of the orchestra. But then you have to, there's all of the thing you have to do with to do with philanthropy, to do mm -hmm. with sponsorship. Um, uh, it's a role that you've been basically permanently in somewhere along the line in the US since 1989. Um, do you find it wonderful to, you know, when you start at say Baltimore, you've now got a brand new whole set of sponsors to meet and friends of the orchestra and whatever else, and, and getting them involved either in the family, keeping them in the family or building new relationships. How do you find that? Because I think some conductors don't have, have publicly said they don't enjoy that aspect of being a, a US music director. You know, I, I maybe because I don't think of it as a, a burden or, yeah. you know, as, as part of philanthropy or this, I just, I'm quite an introvert. So I like the um, opportunity to meet people mm. and have a, um, 
have a forum to do that and a structure. Um, I enjoy people and, and of course, most people that are involved with a symphony, they love music. So mm. we share that common, uh, common um, passion. And, you know, I, I find it interesting, you know, the, the thing that fascinates me the most, I think, is trying to put, put down, put my ear to the ground to mm. hear what, what the community is about. You know, the, every community has a sort of a personality with certain characteristics and, and Baltimore definitely has its own personality. And it's reflected in the, in the spirit and even in the playing of the orchestra. And it's reflected of course, in the whole community, everybody that's involved. And wherever I go, that's, that's what I love. I, I love building situations and, and create, creating those connections and partnerships. And so for me, I have to say going to a new place, it's really fun. Mm. Um, because that's what I, I thrive on. I know a lot of my colleagues, they love just to go in for a week and guest conduct, and then they're done with it. But I'm, I'm someone that likes to put, put roots down and try to, try to grow something that is meaningful, not just for the orchestra, but for the community. Mm. Well, I'm, I think I, you know, I'm very much like you. I, I, I'm looking forward to the day, hopefully one day when somebody gives me the chance to put some roots down and do a music director job somewhere. And I think the reason for that is because, you know, having been a player in Birmingham and now have my role as assistant conductor in Birmingham and been around the place for, you know, almost 30 years or whatever, that I feel the community spirit of the city and I feel what it's like both as a player, but also as an audience member, as somebody who cares deeply about it. So I, I, you know, that interests me greatly. But as you said, some people just want to go in, do two weeks and go back and go away again and do something else. Um, the similarities in the job in, in some regards, I mean, the slightly different role, you know, you mentioned Bournemouth and you were there from two, uh, 2002 to 2008 as principal conductor. There again, it's, a very, it's an orchestra I've conducted a lot and I love, and there's a sort of community spirit around that place. But your role there is a little bit different, you know, because of the government funding, there's always, we're, it's always fighting for money, but it, they get it in a different way to a degree. You know, they, of course, they have sponsors and of course they have local donators. Um, how I know you've done some principal guest roles in Scotland and, and in London before that, but how did you find the role in Bournemouth compared to the US? Also, musically, with the orchestras as well, because I would imagine there's quite a few differences. Yeah, I think I think the thing I I found, you know, and I was also the music director in Colorado, so I, I was coming from that very um, uh, sort of super engaged music directorship, which is, you know, not just pro programming your own concerts, but having the overview of the whole thing and then working the fundraising and the marketing and the blah, blah, blah. Mm. So um, I think in some ways it was, it was a relief to go to an orchestra that was so much part of the tradition of the, of the geography of that area. Yes, um, yeah. We traveled and the orchestra travels, you know, constantly mm. a huge, it covers a huge swath of the country. And I can't tell you how many times after concerts, people would come up to me and say, you know, the first orchestra I heard was the Bournemouth Symphony, whether 20 years ago or sometimes 50 years ago. So there's this enormous sense of um, tradition 
and culture and community that you're mm -hmm. stepping into. So you feel that you have almost a, a cushion or a safety net because they've been doing this for so long yeah. that hopefully yeah. you won't mess it up. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's the idea. I mean, there's always, there's always time to mess things up, but I loved my time in Bournemouth. Um, it was, it, it was very, very special. And, and the orchestra, I think because it is such a family, it feels mm. like a real family. And that's also a reflection of that entire community. Um, I think working in, working in the UK in general, um, is a very different experience from, the United States because I think because of, simply because of the traditions, the cultural um, disposition, the, the role of unions, you know, yes. that's very different. The, the relationship between management and musicians, those kinds of things, they're, they're just structurally and, uh, and um, I think psychically very different. Mm. Um, before we leave the role of being a music director, uh, and and then I go on to talk about Brazil and Austria, um, with another question. It's a it's a question. This is a question I've asked of a few other people who've been music directors in various places, or be, basically always been a music director. Is the role of sort of hiring and firing and engaging and uh, you know that sort of role dealing with the individual players in the orchestra and some of those tricky situations that us as conductors. We're not trained to do. Nobody sits us down in a class when we're 20 and talks about, you know, uh, how best to deal with somebody coming towards the end of their career or how best to deal with a superstar player who's who's a bit of a maverick off the platform and, and you're dealing with disciplinary areas. Did, how did you find that? Did you get good help or do you still get good help in, in various places? You know, that's a great question. And of course, I, I would say that this is the, this is probably the most, challenging area um, mm. to deal with because, I mean, even starting at the audition, it's not as though you just sit in an audition and you pick who you want. You have to build consensus with your musicians. You have to try to get on the same page, um, all these kinds of things. And then it's a very, very delicate and difficult situation when you have a player that perhaps isn't at the same level as they used to be, or the orchestra has perhaps come up a mm. little bit further than the player has. And, you know, I find that, I, I know a lot of my colleagues who try to avoid these situations at all costs, but if they're gonna hire you to be the boss, you have to be the boss. Yeah. I mean, there's certain responsibilities that come along with that role and they're not pleasant whatsoever. Mm. Mm. Um, I've gotten great advice from several people uh, along the way, particularly the former music director of the Baltimore Symphony, the, um, Sergio Comissione, mm. gave me some great advice. And, you know, I try to be, I think the most important thing is to be compassionate and honest. Yes. Yeah. And really try to talk, the, you know, I would much rather enable someone to, to change and grow then have to dismiss them. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's always my goal. Mm. And I'm very pleased to say that often it works. <laughs> well, it so, sounds, like a, sounds like a wonderful approach. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, in the, in the sort of uh, way I want this podcast to be, you know, open and honest and truthful is, is absolutely, the, I think, the best approach uh, in that sort of situation. You know, you just have to, yeah. I, uh, but thank you for being, for, 
for talking about it because it's not it's not an easy thing and as i said we're not trained to do these sort of things um mm -hmm. you know we don't have classes in all of this um uh, and and when when you start out it's not uh, not something i ever think about or thought about you know um i'm thinking about what am i doing with my left hand whilst i'm doing right. that with the crossbeat and 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 you know whether i should be conducting in two or four um but yeah it's tricky um i want to go on uh and talk about orchestral characters or the character of an orchestra. <laughs> We've just been talking about orchestral characters. <laughs> um, and for between 2012 and 2019, you were principal conductor of the Sao Paulo State Symphony Orchestra, or OSESP, um, and then made honorary conductor. And just a couple of years ago, you started as a chief conductor where you currently are in Vienna with the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra. There are, so there are four major countries that have featured in your life as a music director, the US, the UK, Brazil, and Austria. Um, I'm sort of thinking Brazil might be a much more international type orchestra than maybe the others. Um, but what what are there any big differences you can sort of highlight between those four nationalities or those four orchestras? Oh, well, it, I think, I don't know that you could find four more different orchestras. Mm. I mean, I think the commonality for me is their intense musicality and passion. Mm. I think that's the thread that yeah. draws me, that drew me to each of these orchestras. Mm. But I think they're all completely different in character. Um, the, we've talked about Bournemouth a bit and Baltimore is, you know, really, it's an orchestra that it's, it's one of the best kept secrets, sadly in the world it's one of the great orchestras of the world mm. and um nobody really knows about them and you know baltimore is a tough city it's you know roll up your sleeves and work hard that's what the orchestra does just blue collar mm. more much more kind of uh, working class city and and that's reflected there brazil is <laughs> um yeah of course there there are many musicians who weren't born in brazil yeah but 70% of the orchestra is Brazilian. Okay. So right. it's, it's surprisingly, um, it's, it's a surprisingly higher percentage, I think, than one would imagine. Mm. The, and the country is, of course, this unbelievable dichotomy, you know, from the, the haves, have a lots to <laughs> really uh, abject poverty. And <clears throat> in the middle of this is this stunning concert hall, um, um, reconverted train station, absolutely beautiful. And this wonderful orchestra. Um, and I went uh, because um, Tim Walker from the LPO was consulting them. Oh. And he said, I, I really need you to come and um, guest conduct. And I said, oh, come on, I, I don't have time. I don't want to go to Brazil, it's too far. <laughs> I, and of course, when you get to Sao Paulo for anybody that hasn't been there or has been there, you know what I'm saying that it, it's, it's a concrete jungle yeah. and it's every building has graffiti on it. You know, you just, I was cursing Tim all the way in from the airport, <laughs> but then when I got to the, um, got to the concert hall and I started working with the orchestra and I felt their hunger to play and their desire to improve. And, you know, it just was, it was really exciting. Mm. So I, I never would have dreamt that that would be my next um, position and I've loved being there 
every second of it. And, and I'm thrilled that I still return every year now mm. and have projects with them. Um, I would say that uh, they're more flexible. They're able to do things more quickly there. You know, there are not so many stringent rules and work rules. Right. So they're, we were able to do huge amounts of recording, videotaping. We, we have all the Mahlers, all the Brahms, all the Schumann on video. So wow. it's fantastic. And then coming to Vienna, uh, you know, that's, that was such a, a wonderful, again, out of the blue, you know, I had guest conducted maybe in 2014. And I think the, some of the musicians have remembered me from that and asked if I would come. So, and, and Vienna, when you come to Vienna, of course, as a woman conductor, you think, oh, this is not going to go well. Because <laughs> the tradition here is so male-dominated. Mm. The Vienna Philharmonic only allowed women in the orchestra in 1997. I know, I know. So, it's bonkers, isn't it? But what's so fascinating is I've never felt so welcome in a city and by musicians as I have here because they own that they haven't done the right thing in the past. Yes. You know, they own that this is their history and that they want to change that history now. Mm. And I feel enormously supported here. And, you know, there's, there's nothing like um, playing, you know, Mahler Symphony at the Musikverein where, where I, I see all those videos of, of my idol, Leonard Bernstein conducting mm. the Mahlers. You know, it's, it doesn't get much better than this. I'm going to read you a list of firsts, which I'm, uh, and there's a reason for this. Uh, is that uh, and, I, and you know this. Uh, 2011, you were the first woman to conduct a La Scala. 2013, the first to conduct the Last Night of the Proms, and 2019, the first boss of a Vienna orchestra. Um, you in 2015 also became professor and director of the graduate conducting program at the Peabody Institute. Um, so teaching and being a trailblazer is definitely part of your makeup. And I'm, I'm because I, we've already heard Chloe Van Sertestead uh, four or five episodes ago, and she talked about your Tacky Allsop Conducting Fellowship, which you started in 2002. I want to lump all of those three things I've just talked about, being a pioneer or trailblazer, being a now teacher in the Peabody Institute and your fellowship, and ask you, what was the, the, the inspiration behind setting it up? I think it's a wonderful thing, having heard all about it from Chloe and, and gone on the website and all of that. How does it work for you? Do you, are they, you know, can they always just ring you up and say, hey, I've got this concert coming, I need some help over something? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, the, how, basically, how did it start and how, 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 how's it going? <laughs> well, this fellowship, really, what happened was um, when my orchestra that we were talking about earlier, the first orchestra I started, Concordia, when I, I got too busy finally after 18 years to oh. continue with it, my mentor, my non-musical mentor, Tomi Otaki, said, well, okay, so look, we, we achieved our goal. There's, there's a woman now in the, you know, getting to the top of this field. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, but what are you gonna do about all the other women? <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah, that's a nice, you know, how do you do or so, so long. So I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but of course he was right as, yeah. as always. And I decided to start a fellowship, um, you know, and 
you in his name really just to thank him for everything he did for me. And the idea is to try to create opportunities around hugely talented women. Mm. And, you know, so each fellowship is different depending mm. upon where that person is, what they need, what they want. Um, but the great joy, I think, of this COVID time for me has been our weekly, we, we started out even twice a week with Zoom calls with mm. all of us. And we invited people like Bernard Heitink to come and talk to us. And I mean, right. we had, um, we've, we've just had incredible guests. Deborah Border came and spoke, you know, everybody. Yeah. But more importantly, it's a community now for these women. They're 24 at the moment, and but it's not a closed club. You know, other other women, other conductors can always, they know that I'm approachable. I think that's the most important thing. Goes back to what we talked about earlier, that when I was playing violin in, in these gig orchestras and I wanted a lesson, everybody was generous. Mm. So I think I want to give back in that same way. Yeah. Um, and I'm very proud and I, I'm very, you know, people say, well, do we really need a fellowship for women anymore? You know, it seems to, the doors are opening up, but my feeling is, you know, these talented women have been around and this could have happened 20 years ago, but it didn't. Mm. And the old boys network has been here for a long time. So it's time for an old girls network. That's my <laughs> idea. Um, uh, just briefly to pick on one thing that I saw, I, I, uh, I watched some videos yesterday and uh, you, you really rang a bell in my head, actually. There was, it was just a short video, and you were talking to one of your fellows on the fellowship about how a gesture can look... I think the word you used was girly. How a gesture can look girly for, for a girl, but not girly for a man, and how the, the body language is perceived by humanity, I suppose, by everybody from, you know, if a man does a gesture and the woman does exactly the same gesture, that they think we just instinctively read it in a different way. I really hadn't thought of it quite to that level. Um, as, and the way you put it was so well done, so um, easily understandable by anybody. And I think if nothing else, what, you know, you're passing on your experiences of uh, you know, of conducting all of these great orchestras and showing them and saying, look, you know, that gesture there, that could be read by an orchestra full of, you know, 60% of men as this, whereas the 40% the of women are reading it as this, you know, it's right. yeah, fas utterly fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's true. It, it's, it's interesting because, you know, as women on, in leadership roles, we need to think, I think, twice about mm -hmm. what we're doing not just about our intention, but also the perception of our intention. Yeah, well, um, it's a brilliant fellowship and those, and those videos are brilliant as well. And I would heartily recommend. Thank Talking you. about the fellowship and your teaching at Peabody, the final question, which I always ask every conductor, when you have a new score to learn, Marin, or, or even an old favorite, do you have a process? Do you, well, we know you don't sit at the piano. Do you sit at your desk? Do you start at bar one and work your way through? Or do you go through it many times in, at various speeds? And are you a marker of your score? Do you scribble things in? Are you, do you red, blue and black? Or are you just a, a clean, empty, um, you know, white virginal no, I'm, a, I'm definitely a marker. Mm. And um, my two colors, well, my, my most used color is red. Mm. And then blue, for some reason, <clears throat> the horns and the cymbals. Oh. Don't ask me how that developed. No idea. And um, 
occasionally when when it's a complex score and I need to um, dig out the solo line, I'll use green. Mm. But that's that's it. But I I like to mark things. I like to I like to look through from the first bar right to the end first, just to see structurally what's going on, what just to see harmonically, melodically what's happening. But then I I like to dig in right away and mm. sort of get my feet wet and and see what I have. Uh, so it's the same process really for every score. Marin, it is 10 questions time, which every conductor has been subjected to and usually no different. And I shall start at the beginning with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love listening to our cat purr. She's very <laughs> quiet. She's a quiet purr. And this, the sound that I really hate is the sound of heavy wind. It scares me. There's a lot of it in the UK at the moment. Uh, for those, uh, for those um, listeners, it's well, it's a, a historic day. It's Joe Biden's first full day in office, so uh, it's a it's a good day. But it's a rather windy and stormy day in the UK, and I, I'm with you. I sit at the top of my house, and when the wind starts rattling the windows, it's quite scary. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Oh, I think my favorite thing to do is really to spend some time outdoors with my family. My son loves to climb. And uh, so we like to hike in and, and we try not to watch him because it's terrifying, but it, it gives him such joy that it, it brings us great joy. And uh, is he the sort of uh, young man who goes to, you know, these climbing walls indoors and uh, roping up and all of that stuff? Yeah, yeah, ah. that's him. You know him. Right. So uh, yeah, don't take him to Yosemite Park and, you know, <laughs> and um, El Capitan. Oh, right. There. Okay. <laughs> um. The next one, you can have more than one, obviously, and um, I think I know who one of them might be. <laughs> who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Yeah, of course, uh, we know Leonard Bernstein has to be yeah. top of the list. Yeah. But I also, I'm a huge fan of uh, the um, Hungarian conductor, Kertes. Ah. And, uh, you know, a couple others that, that immediately come to mind are uh, Thomas Shippers, uh, Charlie McCarris, and... Uh, of course, the the wonderful um, Morris Janssens. Mm. It's funny. Um, uh, Macaris has, has appeared recently, I think, before, and Maris Janssens, obviously, and Lenny. Um, but uh, Kertesh, not at all. Um, not a name that's appeared. Uh, but in oh, the well, I'm glad I can uh, I I can bring somebody, you know, into into focus who 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 your listeners may not know that well. Mm. Absolutely spectacular Dvorak symphonies, really interesting. Yes. I, I just think he's super talented. Well, uh, the question that Daniel Harding said was cruel is number five. Um, who amongst the favorite current conductors would you call the super talent? Oh my God, come on. This is so unfair, right? <laughs> I know it so, is, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, all I can say is all I love going to hear all of my colleagues. I'm going to start with with Bernard Heiting. I know he's not conducted yeah. anymore, but I think he's phenomenal. Um, you know, but everybody, come on. Uh, John Elliott Gardner, Vladimir Jarofsky, Ricardo Muti, Yannick, Alan Gilbert, you know, Leonard Slatkin, MTT, um, Daniel Harding. You yeah. know, <laughs> there's so many, there's so many wonderful conductors to to experience. I mean, that's the joy of, at least 
living in London when there were concerts, huh? Every yeah. night you could see something else. Here in Vienna, every night I can go to the Musikverein and hear a different touring orchestra. I mean, sadly, that we're missing that desperately now. Yes, we are. We we very much are. But your, your answer is so true. There are so many great conductors. I mean, I suppose in the past people have tried to we left simon rattle out we, simon. Well, yeah how dare we leave simon out um mm. but you know putting sometimes they've done it sort of repertoire late you know if i want to go in here bruckner then i might go in here whatever um, yeah of course yeah but uh, you're right there are so many so many great conductors uh, and it, we're lucky to be living in this time when we do have so many great conductors we are absolutely what is the hardest work you have ever conducted well, this isn't going to be satisfying for too many people because it's a work that probably no one really knows, but it's a piece by my uh, dear composer friend who passed away last year, Christopher Rouse. Um, and it's his trombone concerto, which is just the most unbelievable mixed meter piece, but at a tempo where you really can't subdivide. Ah. So you have to go from seven to eight to nine, sixteens, you know, and, and make all those transitions. Mm. So... I think the musicians are still imitating me conducting that piece <laughs> because I was so crazed. <laughs> I, I do remember opening one score. It was a world premiere for somebody. I just thought this is either this is it's like conducting the telephone book. There was that, <laughs> every bar was different. You know, you just think, oh right. Oh okay. yeah. Oh, oh no, definitely every bar. The, the the amazing thing about Chris's music though is it it's so doggone hard, but it's so rewarding. Yeah. You know, when it's when it's hard and, and the payoff is great, it's worth it. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I wouldn't leave home without my eye patches. Do you know what that is? You know, to to for sleeping. Oh yes, a, a, a sleeping mask. Yeah. But I have yeah, I have I have a special brand that is awesome. I've had them for years. I think if I lose them, I'll just have to retire. <laughs> what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor i think they're oh it's I'm, I'm only allowed one thing huh no you can have you can have more than one okay i i would say never getting to hang out with other conductors don't you find that frustrating <sighs> Yeah, well, um, it's it's one of the joys of doing this podcast is I've met sixty six other conductors. Some of them I knew already, but like you and I played for you on many occasions in the Birmingham Orchestra, but I never spoke to you, and it's been wonderful. So, yes, I agree. Carry on. <laughs> and um, but I was I was thinking, you know, that um, I'm not super in touch with it because I haven't been traveling that much. But I think the inordinate amount of travel and and isolation that we go through on the road. I think that's the one thing I would change. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I definitely would have liked to have been a detective. Oh, private detective or uh, with a police force? Maybe the head of the forensic uh, department. Mm. <laughs> so I'm guessing your downtime TV watching, uh, you know, NCIS or whatever. Listen, I have a whole series called CSI Beethoven. Oh, there you go. <laughs> very good. <laughs> That's, uh, again, an answer nobody said before. Brilliant. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, I'm afraid I'm not that sophisticated. Diet Coke is my favorite drink always. But <laughs> I would go back to our neighbor, Mrs. Partenza. Every Wednesday night, she cooked a mean spaghetti and meatballs. 
I'd love to have that again. Mm. Oh, that sounds great. And, and the, the Diet Coke, you've been chugging away on a glass of a huge glass of it throughout the interview. Um, yeah, I'm almost done. See, the interview <laughs> must be almost over. <laughs> the interview must always be over, which means I, ha I have to say, Marin, it's been a total joy. Uh, I love chatting to you. As I've said, I love um, saying hi to you for the first time and, and meeting. And hopefully in the future, we can actually meet face to face and uh, I'll buy you a Diet Coke or something a little bit stronger. I, I look forward to it and, and congratulations on this wonderful effort of yours. It's really, really great. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a conductor who has a truly international career, guest conducting all across the globe whilst holding chief conductor positions in either Sweden or his native Finland almost constantly since 1998. Until then, bye-bye.